0: On today's episode, we're revisiting a topic that's both extremely timely while at the same time is literally the thing that got me interested in understanding money and led me to cryptocurrency in the first place 12 years ago. As much of the world on an almost uniform and bipartisan basis shuts down to slow the spread of COVID-19 and prepares to bail out first financial markets and then basically everything that can't work on a fully remote basis, we're talking about the crisis, the bailouts, the limits of monetary policy, and the real possibility that it's not a straw that breaks the back of our money, but rather the whole world suddenly jumping right on. Today's episode is sponsored by eToro.com. Let's Talk Bitcoin is owned by the hosts and editorially independent, but you can find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk podcast network at Coindesk.com, the LTB network at LetstalkBitcoin.com and on our privately managed show only subscriber feed at LTBshow.com. With all of that said, I'd like to welcome you to the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. This is episode 431. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm a longtime journalist, entrepreneur and also an editor at Coindesk these days. Joining our discussion today are the other hosts of the show, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hello. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hey, everyone. Thanks for being here today, guys. I appreciate that the circumstances are quite unusual, and uh, I'm glad we get the opportunity to have this conversation today.
1: Hey, what else are we going to (laughs) do? We're all stuck inside.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So today, as I kind of mentioned at the top, we're going to discuss three basic things. One is the growing bipartisan and global shutdown and bailout everything movement. Two, is the inability of even extraordinary and unprecedented monetary policy to actually resolve these issues in a way that seems like it'll do anything productive for any sort of length of time. And three, the revival of the system is breaking. And when it does, we'll need something new that doesn't share the same problems of being vulnerable to politically expedient overreactions narrative. That frankly is what drove, I think, many of our initial interest in Bitcoin in the first place. But before we get into those topics, Stephanie, can you give us a quick update on the virus itself and recent events?
1: Yeah, so we released a show a couple of weeks ago where I think everyone is going through these waves of accepting that our lives are going to change in a big way. The situation has certainly changed since the last time we discussed it on the show. We have some bonus content also from last week if you want to hear more of our perspectives on this. But basically, you know, the US and other countries that were later hit by the virus pandemic are starting to finally take things more seriously. Some people are understandably very concerned and alarmed, making lots of preparations for their lives to change, including, you know, taking measures to not have contact with other people in order to avoid spreading the virus. It's come to light that this particular virus has a long incubation period potentially where someone can have the virus and transmit it to other people, but not show any symptoms. And so, of course, you know, this causes a lot of concern. What if this person has it? What if this person has it? It's a scary prospect, right? And so social distancing or staying out of spaces, large gatherings of people, restaurants, bars, anywhere where people gather has been the prescription as the way to stop this thing. Because, of course, you know, if too many people get it, especially older people seem very vulnerable, the hospitals will get overwhelmed. There are not enough respiratory critical care resources to take care of everybody who would potentially get sick and need critical care if this thing spreads quickly. So our best hope of beating it is to reduce contact with each other and avoid transmitting it. So that has had a number of real-world effects. First of all, the economy is really changing in a situation where people are staying indoors. They're not patronizing restaurants and bars. Obviously, this is very hard hit. Employees of those establishments are finding themselves suddenly out of work. Schools, workplaces, colleges, other institutions are closing places where people normally gather, and they're transitioning to remote learning, which could have effects on internet bandwidth. We don't really know yet, but as many schools transition to remote and as many workplaces transition to remote, we could see lots of effects of that. People are staying Basically, with their families, you know, we could see some sociological effects from this. For some people, this is extremely psychologically burdensome to be deprived of interaction with other people or the ability to really go out and do stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and mental health issues that could come out of this, too. We've seen bailouts, you know, from government already. Basically, orders to kind of enforce these quarantining measures combined with bailouts of industries that are affected by them. And we're definitely going to talk about those on the show today.
2: I think a month ago, if you said that Donald Trump would be supporting UBI and the European Union would close all their borders, you'd be (laughs) called crazy. Yeah. And yet, of the timelines available to us, that's where we're at today.
1: Yeah, we were talking about that on the show with Andrew Yang and his presidential campaign. I heard a quote from him saying that, You know, I didn't think that I would end my presidential campaign in February and then in March we would be doing the exact thing that I campaigned on. But here we are. (laughs) I just want to point
3: out that in a recent meeting, I believe Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin said that what we must absolutely do is avoid using the word bailouts in any discussion of this in the public. This was leaked. And one of the people present raised their hand and asked if we can instead call them freedom payments. (laughs) (laughs) So in the vein of freedom fries, we're now gonna get freedom payments. And yeah, the bailouts are starting. Two weeks ago I tweeted that Boeing would be one of the first companies to go under. And it seems like that may well be the case. Yeah, you called that. Good job, Andreas. They're gonna get a bailout first, but You know, this is a much broader thing, but I think it's important to separate two different aspects of this. So a lot of people are going to see this as the direct result of the pandemic. But the truth is, and we've been talking about it for the last 10 years, is that especially the US economy, but many economies around the world have been an increasingly precarious condition long before this pandemic hit. The US was operating at abnormally low interest rates with quantitative easing continuing. In fact, if you remember, we had the latest round of quantitative easing started in October, long before the pandemic, with problems in the Fed's repo market and the overnight lending market that dried up because of liquidity shortages in the dollar markets. So this was an economy that already was underperforming especially for the vast majority of people and underperforming while on a steady full drip of stimulus and low interest rates, it was by no means the healthy economy. So this is the environment into which the pandemic is now creating a secondary problem. I think it is important to separate the issues of financialization, the monetary issues, which are issues of cheap credit, misallocation of credit, debt portfolios that are distressed and bad loans, companies doing share buybacks in order to prop up their shares, and all of that crap that was happening for the past 10 years and was a steady drumbeat of fake financial news and fake financial numbers to make everything look like it was okay. Now we're dealing with a very different problem. And The thing here is that we now have a fundamental simultaneous supply chain crisis as well as productivity crisis. People are going to become unemployed in very large numbers that we haven't seen before, especially in some of the most affected industries. This is going to hit an already distressed middle class and below much harder And you can't stimulus your way out of a demand collapse and a productivity collapse because the problem is, you know, even with giving people money like helicopter payments, people are going to spend that on absolute essentials like rent and utilities, which is going to go right back into the pockets of very large companies and already rich real estate magnates. It's not going to circulate and create jobs for the people who actually need them. So we've got these two issues, one, a monetary crisis, and two, a labor crisis now.
2: And it artificially keeps rent and food prices higher than the market wishes them to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's not as if, you know, 40% of all landlords are going to take zero dollars off of what units that they can't rent versus 70% or 70 cents of the dollar for every unit they could rent. So, you know, The unconscionable thought that perhaps Manhattan real estate would go down for a year is just, we can't let that happen.
0: So I think it's worth talking about sort of the bailouts at kind of the principles level, right? Because for me, a lot of the reason why I was, I think many of us were vehemently opposed to the bailouts of the banking system and many of the companies during the financial crisis was it sure looked like they acted in ways that were fundamentally irresponsible and then wound up blowing themselves up. And so in that sort of circumstance, there was this concern and continues to be this concern of moral hazard, where if you bail these people out...
1: It's rewarding bad behavior.
0: Exactly. And you're doing it at the expense of the taxpayers, who obviously had no involvement in that and did not make any of those business decisions. What's going on now is a little bit different because as you said, Andreas, it's a collapse of demand, right? As we shut down our normal interactions, as we shut down the way that kind of life works right now, that's not really the case. And my point broadly is that... I am also opposed to these bailouts, but I'm opposed for a fundamentally different reason, which is I don't think it's going to work. I think that the attempt to solve this problem using that same old you know, toolkit is effectively going to make things worse and at the end of the day, not actually resolve the problem in a way that anybody is hoping for.
3: I totally agree. I oppose them for all of the previous reasons and for that reason as well. The previous reasons being moral hazard and unacceptable behavior that didn't actually change and the new reason that it won't work because Boeing, a company that no longer makes planes that actually fly, does not deserve a bailout. The fracking industry that over leveraged on financialization on the expectation of high oil prices, does not deserve a f-ing bailout. The airlines that have degraded into a duopoly or triopoly in the United States and have all of this subsidy and protectionism do not deserve a bailout. The banks that, once again, do not deserve a bailout after their orgy of fraud that continued 10 years after the recession, and all of those companies that have been doing share buybacks and not building an emergency fund like the rest of us are expected to do. Like, what is the prudent thing of a middle-class family supposed to be? You have three to six months of an emergency fund for a rainy day. Now, where's that for all of these companies? They want a bailout? They didn't have an emergency fund in place. Why the hell should they get bailed out?
0: And in addition to the types of industries that you mentioned, there's also movie theaters that are talking about cruise ships, which are basically, it sounds like, already going to get it, casinos, you
2: know, restaurants. But there also are mechanisms by which large corporations can inject capital into their company. It's called a primary issuance. God forbid they're underwater on their executive stock auction plan because they needed to decide to issue extra equity into the market which tanks their share price, but then infuses the capital they need for three or six months.
3: They also have full access to bankruptcy. So let's just play this
0: out. Like, let's assume that there aren't going to be any bailouts. How would that actually work?
3: What would that actually do? You issue debt or you issue equity. Or you go bankrupt and you allow the market to pick apart the carcass of your company and allocate it more efficiently to newer, better companies that are doing a better job. If Boeing disappears tomorrow, none of their planes, factories, and skills go away. They get picked apart and bought for pennies on the dollar by smaller and more nimble competitors that are going to come into this market.
0: So the people who take the hit on that are the people who own the stock of the company, who own the equity of the company, and to a lesser extent, who own the bonds of the company.
2: If they don't get bailed out, yes. I think the word you're looking for is speculators get hurt.
0: Yes, yes. Okay, so what happens to people who work for Boeing? What happens to people who work for these various industries? Bail them out. Okay, so we're... Well, that's called unemployment.
3: Yeah. So offer generous unemployment for the employees of failed businesses and offer bailouts for the middle class and let investors eat their losses.
1: I'm still stuck on they make planes that don't fly. Can you tell me more about that? <laughs>
3: So the 737 MAX that was basically in an attempt to win the race with Airbus, they put a plane that had structural design problems that should never have been put in the air. And they tried to build a software fix, and then they tried to cover up the fact that that required additional training. And they covered up all of these faults with this system and other production faults. And this goes back to Boeing buying McDonnell Douglas MD back in, I think it was 2000 or something like that. They went from being an engineering-focused company to being a financialized-focused company run by MBAs. And this is exactly the result that happens. Boeing has been on a steady decline for the past 15 to 20 years. This is just... Their past mistakes coming home to roost has nothing to do with the pandemic. They were already in deep shit because they stopped making planes that fly properly. Basically, they wanted to build a new 737 that was as fuel efficient as the other aircraft out there. However, the 737 has fairly low to the ground wings. In order to not change the configuration of anything else in the airframe, in order to fit engines that are wider in circumference, The jet intake and pass-through flow is basically much bigger in diameter jet engines that have much more air flowing through them, and lower RPMs work more efficiently than smaller engines at higher RPMs. So in order to put high bypass jet engines in there of the new types with a wider And the cells, they couldn't fit them under the wing because they'd hit the ground. They need ground clearance. So instead, what they did is they pushed them forward and mounted them in front of the wing. And that changed the characteristics of the plane under high angles of attack, leading to stall behavior, especially during takeoff when you're at full engine thrust and high angle of attack. And so they created then a software fix that would, if it noticed that the angle of attack was too high, would nudge the nose lower. And that software system was susceptible to the angle of attack sensor being off, thinking the nose was angled high and pushing it down until it hit the ground. Oh, boy. And they did all of this to save money. But this is the poster child of the modern American multinational that is all about financializing debt and engineering customer service, quality of products, all come second, third, fourth, or fifth. And there's a complete culture of impunity, which is aided then by completely captured regulators like the FAA. And this is the same thing that's happening in pharma, in healthcare, and finance, and real estate, in every business in the country.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for explaining that because it really just shows how absurd the situation is. Like, this is what happens when companies That are making poor decisions are propped up by legal decree. It does remind me of the pharma industry, where, you know, for example, like when a company, this has happened many times, so I'm not using a specific name, but a company knows that a drug is dangerous, they know it's hurting people, they release it anyway, and then they get protected from having to be accountable for their mistakes by government. And there's a revolving door between the companies and the FDA who regulates them.
3: Yes. So capitalism without actual free markets, where zombie corporations that grow too big to fail get continuously bailed out at the expense of their smaller competitors who are actually trying to compete with them and cannot compete because they're also competing against the government subsidies and regulations and all of the other shit that keeps these giant zombies propped up, means that not only do these Companies not fail, but they keep misallocating capital and investment leading to bigger and bigger failures. And the answer is really simple. The answer is to let the free market do its job. And if we're really concerned about and we should be concerned about all the people who are going to lose their job or need retraining and reskilling, then give them a bailout. Investors should eat this and they should eat this because that is the essence of investment. You take risks, you get rewards. If you only get rewards and you never take risks, then that's not capitalism anymore. That's corporate welfare.
1: Yeah, the incentives are just aligned right now to just see what you can do to just become too big to fail. Well, I think these incentives got
2: realigned at an even more fundamental level, which is how many congressmen become millionaires while they're in office. Very much so. There's a very specific law that literally says that they can insider trade off of the allocations of resources they're going to pass in a law in their own portfolio. So if you have the ability to insider trade market movements, then when there's volatility and you can act rather than not act, you have a delta on information as to how the market's going to move that affects your portfolio. So if the only thing you do is 99% of all your wealth on earth is the insider trading you have on a portfolio of public companies because it's the only equity that you have, and doing nothing isn't insider information, but doing something is insider information. You are the f*** out of it. And so what happens? You know, Dianne Feinstein and Chuck Schumer and some other, named a couple of Republicans, I don't know, they all just insider trade and magically they started off with a hundred grand and now they have 50 million. The other thing that sort of relates this back to Bitcoin is a lot of people actually say the reason the Great Depression was the Great Depression was because of the government action and that there actually was a greater calamity that happened a couple of years before, but because the government did nothing, bad debt washed out, and the market recovered far quicker than it ever could have with the injection of capital.
0: I think that's my particular concern in this situation right now, is that you know, we've been in this very, very partisan place for the last you know, a lot of years at this point in the United States, and many places around the world as populism comes into contact with the way that things are. But now, kind of as all of this is coming up, the politically expedient path in many countries, not the least of which being the U.S., is to push down this path of basically bailouts for everybody. And instead of, you know, during the financial crisis, you at least saw a wing of the Republican Party that said, we probably shouldn't do this and we should just let free market, you know, actually happen. It wasn't a big enough grip to actually mean anything, but there was actually an argument being made. And in this situation, I mean, that group is tiny, tiny, tiny.
3: This isn't a partisan issue. It's really, really simple. Fiscally conservative, nothing exists in an environment where the incentives are aligned to get reelection campaign funds from the largest donors. In that kind of environment, they're going to cater to the needs of the large donors. Look at the discussion. And I'll take it in a completely bipartisan way just because they're all f-ing assholes anyway. But the bottom line is right now, the entire discussion is how do we save the stock market?
0: Exactly. We need to save Main Street in order to save the stock market because otherwise, the fake reality that is the stock market can't even justify itself. If literally revenue goes down by 50%, you just can't justify anything close to where we are now. And that's kind of the cognitive dissonance that's going on throughout.
3: Yes. And we're not talking about some of the root causes of why we're in this position, which is these fake broken markets that have been built around a variety of industries especially in the US, and the biggest one is healthcare. Healthcare is the worst of a socialized system and the worst of a for-profit system mashed together to get the absolute worst of the combination. And it is the Achilles heel of this country. And now it's going to come out in its full glory. And that means that even for-profit hospitals don't have the essential supplies. Because guess what? Disaster preparedness is not something that shareholders will invest in. And turns out that government is needed for some things. So we've got the worst of both cases. We've got a government that actually doesn't serve the fundamental needs it has to serve, like being there for disasters like this. And. A system where you have exploitation for profit at a ridiculous level by markets that are controlled by monopolies, duopolies, oligopolies, oligopsonies, in a massive kleptocratic orgy. So we're not getting either good side. These imbalances need to be fixed. And in fact, they're going to be fixed. They're going to be fixed by the simple expedient that the other fixes aren't going to work.
2: I think that there's something really interesting happening, which is both a great parallel from the 1930s and today and what the future could look like, which is a Great Depression or a Great Recession and the difference between the dollar, gold, and Bitcoin. Because there are very interesting things that are happening here. One is you need to make systems a function of their nature, otherwise politics can deviate them. So gold and Bitcoin, you can't create an infinite amount of gold or Bitcoin. And because of that, It doesn't allow for the political realities of pretending you're fiscally responsible because the reality is you only have so much to spend. So you're bound by reality. The problem, though, with gold is that you actually have to create it so you can have massive supply side short squeezes on the ability to produce gold. So when the Spanish flu happened and everyone got sick, I'm pretty sure the amount of people who were mining gold went down and the supply of gold, even just to get new issuance, that should have been there probably had a supply truncation. So this crazy thing that Bitcoin has is both the reliable supply, irrespective of supply side capacity to generate, because it's constantly retargeting to stabilize for the supply issuance, but also being capped in the amount that can be created is this like very unique property to Bitcoin. And I hope a hundred years from now, when we have our next 1920s great catastrophe we're using something like Bitcoin because it's anti-fragile in a way that I don't think any financial system that we've used had before for either side of the problems that we face when we reach these sorts of problems.
3: Your opinion, Jonathan, I mean, it sounds like you believe that the sound money properties of Bitcoin are triumphing or will triumph. Last week, exactly a week ago, Thursday was the absolute market collapse of all crypto leading to 50% losses across the board. Some recovery, some bounce has happened. But a lot of the narrative going into last week from that big crash was, there you go, see, it's not sound money after all. It failed to fulfill that narrative. Now, I think that was... One battle, and that the war of sound money, if you like, the long term perspective of sound money hasn't been proven one way or another.
2: I don't mean to be one of those guys who, you know, looks at the history to always conform to his, you know, economic reality. But what I would like to say is a principle when you're dealing with massive systems that humanity uses, but also in your own life, it's not like perfect is the enemy of the good. And so I like to look at something compared to what right? So I don't think Bitcoin is the final solution. I don't think 300 years from now, someone won't come up with something better or 50 years from now, someone won't come up with something better. But did Bitcoin perform its service better than what we're comparing it to? And if you look at the total global markets, Bitcoin basically moved in tandem with them and is actually recovering despite that they're not. Was there a hiccup? Yes. Did it not perform perfectly? Yes. Did it outperform what we're comparing it to? Yes. And when it gets to the point where it's as large as the dollar, will it outperform compared to the dollar? And I think that the answer to that is yes. So will it have problems? Is perfect the enemy the good? Yeah. But it is a vast improvement against that which it's replacing. And that's all we can do in this life is, you know, we like to talk about the bazaar versus the cathedral. And the beautiful thing about a cathedral is the narrative of you building something that you know you will not see come to completion, but you know your child will take on and complete for you or his child will take on and complete for you. And I think that when we look at Bitcoin and systems to try to improve humanity, like our story in this tale is not to come up with the solution. It's to make the world for our children better and for them to outdo us. And that's the story of life. And I think Bitcoin is way freaking better than the dollar. But is it anywhere close to where we need to be in that perfect, you know, platonic concept? No, but it's a hell of a lot better than everything else. And I demonstrate that by saying, look, it did just as horrible as the market, but it also has these features that the market doesn't have. Like you can't shut off trading.
3: That's an interesting one. I think it's a point worth making. One of the fascinating things we've seen play out over the last week, so just almost exactly seven days, is that. During the past, let's say seven to 10 days from last Tuesday until today, Thursday, when we're recording this, the S&P 500 has had limit down moments every single day and trading halted several times a day, every single day as the circuit breakers kick in, right? Meanwhile, Bitcoin not only trades 24 seven with no circuit breakers traded all through the weekend. So there is no difference between the futures markets and the spot markets. They're both open 24 seven and there's no limit down breakers. It just kept dropping until people finally got to a point where some buyers were seeing a buying opportunity and going against that trend. So, you know, it was hard. It was sharp. And it may not be over, but it was certainly in an environment of a fully open market with no training wheels, no guardrails, no parachutes, just raw free market. And from that perspective, it did okay. And then there's gold. I mean, gold is down, what, 15% in a week and a half?
2: You know, when people said they wanted Bitcoin to be the gold standard, I think I took that both to mean the both goods and the bads, right? <laughs> if you're comparing it to something that it's operating in tandem with the gold standard.
3: Well, you know, we saw a very similar picture. If you look back to what happened 2007, 2008, gold was trading at about seven dollars or $800. It dropped at first and dropped a good 20%. And then it basically doubled until its peak at about, I don't know, 1600 1700 and now it's dropped again. Part of the reason this is happening, by the way, and I think many people don't understand this, is that when there is a crisis like this, a lot of people end up with positions they need to cover, whether that's their under collateralized ETH DIE loan, which is a very sophisticated synthetic, or it's their much more mundane need to pay rent, or it's somewhere in between margin calls and things like that that need to be covered. Other positions, capital adequacy requirements, risk limits that are in portfolios, etc. At which point, anything that can be sold for cash is sold for cash. And obviously, one of those things that people needed to sell for cash that they could use to pay bills or balance portfolios or whatever was Bitcoin, because people are still paying their bills in fiat.
2: But also the tax man. I mean, there's a joke. Bitcoin always goes down in March because people realize that cap gains means you have to pay that. And so I actually think, you know, if you look at Bitcoin's recovery, there's a lot of looking at what's topical in the market and then drawing causality to what's occurring in a stock pick. But if you look at what the U.S. government did, they announced that they would be delaying the period in which you needed to file and pay your taxes from April till a couple of months past. 90 days. Now, a massive amount of positions people were going to liquidate in order to cover their tax liability. They now have another 90 days on. Well, I generally try to
3: avoid trading when the markets are like this. I'm not really a trader. I think I do maybe four or five trades a year. And usually it's because I'm trying to rebalance things. So I'm trying to keep things a bit diversified. But honestly, you know, a month and a half ago, I did sell some Bitcoin when people were feeling quite exuberant and the price was doing well, took some profits and diversified a bit. And I haven't even touched the markets or done any trading in the last month and a half for me now is not the time to touch anything
1: let's talk bitcoin would like to thank our sponsor etoro what is etoro it's an established u.s regulated trading platform trusted by millions of worldwide users with over a trillion dollars of trading volume on the platform per year it lets you access the world's most popular crypto assets and if you're not ready to start trading yet, you can even try it out in their virtual trading mode with $100,000 in test funds available as soon as you open your account. It's easy to get started in minutes with automatic account verification and 24-hour weekday support and a fast ticket response time. eToro gives you powerful trading tools made easy. Get started today by creating your account at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Please be aware that cryptocurrencies are highly volatile and trading them carries risks.
0: Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. As I mentioned at the top of each episode, I'm now an editor at CoinDesk, building out the CoinDesk podcast network and an ever-increasing variety of shows. Today I'm pleased to announce that I'm hiring a full-time, fully remote deputy editor who will join as my second in command as we grow out what is a very exciting new opportunity. Before you apply, please ensure that you not only have a lot of experience, but more importantly, a deep passion for high-quality, detail-oriented audio editing, working with talent remotely to get the best possible performance, and if you're into script writing, music composition, or documentary scoring, that'd be great too. Most importantly, the person that fills this role needs to have a deep understanding of blockchain, bitcoin, and cryptocurrency technologies. No, I don't mean that you need to know about every project and how they all work out there, But you do need to be very comfortable with the basics and doing content editing around that. How does proof of work actually work? What's the point of the having? What's the difference between a layer 1 and layer 2 token? For long-time listeners, this won't be a big ask, but our audience is pretty special in that way. And so I want to invite anyone looking for a new challenge to send me an email at adamlevine at coindesk.com or apply directly via the link in today's show notes. Thanks for listening. Let's rejoin the conversation now.
3: Another thing to keep in mind is that we need to be very, very careful about what we do with assets that are in private companies' hands, custodial accounts, at this time. One, because custodial accounts fail when the companies that own them fail. So I'm worried about the dollars I have in my bank account because I don't know that the bank is still going to be around. I don't believe FDIC is... FDIC is for solving small and few bank failures that happen on a regular basis anyway. It's not for systemic problems. At that point, FDIC itself is quite inadequate to support what people have deposited. And so the same thing applies to crypto. Custodial accounts are risky, and they're risky for two reasons in crypto. One is that the companies may end up failing. And when they find themselves undercapitalized, fractionally reserved, or trying to hide a hack or loss, and the market retreats from under them, is the time when they most often fail, right? So, you know, for example, Empty Gox, which is a story we covered extensively, was doing great until the price started retrenching. And then once they started experiencing losses and could no longer make it up on gains, they basically went under all of a sudden. So that's another reason. The other reason, of course, is that if Bitcoin does end up being a good store of value, if it ends up being an asset that appreciates, counter-correlated to everything else, if there's a flight of capital and people consider it a safe haven, and I don't know if that's going to happen, but if it did happen, that's the moment when you get the executive order that says all of those accounts have to be turned into the government to be sold at auction for dollars just exactly like happens with gold. So those are the two risks that we face at the moment from custodial accounts. Okay, so
0: a couple of quick comments, and then uh, I'm going to pivot us just a little bit. One with regards to circuit breakers. So they don't exist in Bitcoin as a whole, but we are starting to see in the aftermath of last week, a couple of different exchanges rolling out what they're calling circuit breakers at an exchange level. Specifically, Huobi rolled out a rolling liquidation circuit breaker. And I believe that there's another crypto derivatives platform called ByBits. It's not the price of Bitcoin, but people who are doing derivatives are starting to seem to put these controls in place. But it's different, right? It's not like this is the definitive market. It's just that this is one of the sort of derivative markets almost. And so it's not the same, but we are starting to see those come into Bitcoin. So when you hear people talk about that, just know that we're not talking about Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin has no circuit breakers, but some exchanges can choose to put those in as a feature. And then the other thing that I think is worth mentioning here is, you know, we've talked a lot in recent episodes about reflexivity and the price of Bitcoin, which basically means that the price of Bitcoin today influences the price of Bitcoin tomorrow because of people's expectations. But one way in which Bitcoin is not reflexive, as we've discussed for a long time, is in its core monetary policy. And I think that it's interesting to look at that in the face of sort of the rest of the world and the rest of the system and see that it's almost the opposite, right? The price reflexivity of the dollar, not so much, right, because the dollar is the standard against which everything else is measured. But from a monetary policy standpoint, short-term expectations can actually lead to monetary policy reflexivity, as we've seen with the Fed's multiple attempts now to inject liquidity into various markets to try and prop up these sort of various facilities. You know, the most recent thing I believe they did was open a loan facility essentially for companies and for banks that allows them to accept stocks as collateral and give access to short-term capital or perhaps not short-term capital.
3: I would like to compare that directly to the hoarding behavior around toilet paper. It's just like the Fed giving paper worthless money in return for paper worthless stock certificates is a bit like the average American running into the store and trying to buy as much toilet paper as they can.
0: Right. My point broadly is that As I said kind of at the top of the show, one of the things that got me particularly interested in learning about money and learning how all these systems work was that in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, it became clear that this idea that we should modify monetary policy in order to prevent failures today at the cost of tomorrow was a bad idea. And it seems like we're now entering a period of time where that is true tenfold, a hundredfold more than it was at that last time. And Bitcoin, again, was not available at the time of the last global financial crisis, and it is today. And so the difference in that perhaps is being emphasized or should be emphasized in a way that was not possible at that time, simply because it does present a real alternative. It's not saying that everyone should load into it, but just to say that the idea that you can actually allow the free market and market, you know, people to exhaust themselves effectively, right? That's like when we're talking about circuit breakers in the stock market. And like now they're talking about reducing the number of hours, right, that these markets can trade and stuff like that. The reason why markets are going down isn't because of the number of hours. And it's not because of the circuit breakers. It's because people are panicking and because they're trying to solve a problem and rebalance their risk. And so I think what we see every time these are applied is that first off, they don't work. And second off, they create even more volatility because it has to happen in a shorter period of time, which makes it that much harder for a normal person to actually use the markets in ways that are effective. And mostly it doesn't work, right? Like that's the key.
2: (laughs) Well, you see, Adam, I don't know about you, but if we're a couple of percentage points before the circuit breaker, then I just know I'm going to sell because I have to get out before the circuit breaker. Right, exactly. Because the only thing scarier than losing money is being told, no, you cannot sell your money. And being locked into these positions. I think the fundamental difference
3: here is one of perspective and time preference. These circuit breakers and limitations of hours, they're to stop the very, very short attention span panic that is happening. And in many ways, they might work for that. They're short term measures with short term effect that can only affect the short term problem. What we're not looking at is, of course, the long term measures for long term effect for the long term problems that are much more difficult to solve. And the real question is are the short term measures actually undermining the long term? health i think that's really the issue i mean
0: like is that a question like
3: clearly the political expediency of
0: doing something god anything just stop this or at least act like you're doing something seems like it clearly and irrevocably comes at the cost of the longer term
2: yes no one gets reelected doing nothing if congress people were kindergartners and we put them all in charge of a caterpillar they'd all kill it before it became a butterfly because they couldn't justify to their constituents <laughs> why they couldn't help the little caterpillar get out of the little chrysalis. I mean, aren't you heartless? How dare you not help them get out of the chrysalis? And then all you end up with are dead butterflies. And the dead caterpillars.
3: Yeah, dead pre-butterflies. Squished worms. Protein soup. All right, so... Can we all agree, though? I mean, we're talking about these measures. They are going to get more extreme. They are going to reach numbers that are ridiculous. We're going to see negative interest rates. We're going to see helicopter money. We're going to see infinity, quantitative easing. We're going to see stimulus. We're going to see tax breaks, all of which are going to reach numbers that are unheard of, most of which are going to be targeted at the top earners, biggest companies, and most well-off with another trickle-down model that isn't going to work. And there's going to be yet another massive wealth transfer and increase inequality as a result until people have had enough.
2: I think to that point, the scariest thing about what's being talked about is the last bailout had a public outcry. This bailout has actual cash flow needs. And so what we're going to find is an omnibus bill with disgusting, inordinate amounts that makes the $1.8 trillion look like nothing. And the U.S. government's going to say, look, do you want your $2,000 or not? Because how are you going to pay for your kids' food tomorrow? Right. If you want $2,000, Boeing has to get half a trillion and keep going from there and down the list. But this time they actually have our gun to our heads because people literally don't have food money. That kind of is
0: the problem, right, in this new era that we appear to be walking into where literally everything is going to require and get a bailout. I feel like increasingly we're walking into a situation where, you know, the tail that is the government is going to attempt to wag the dog. And that's not how it works, right? If the governments around the world were in a healthy situation, if we had recovered in a way that would have been a bit more free market from the prior set of crises, and perhaps there would be buffer to maybe do something along the lines of this without really really enfeebling the ability of the kind of monetary system to move forward but that's not the situation that we're in we're in a situation that is much different than that and where we've already been sort of stretched to the limits and the vast majority of people out there are stretched to the limits already and so this disruption comes at a time when it will hurt absolutely the most that is the part that i am most concerned about is that it feels like the likelihood we will get Temporary measures that will perhaps temporarily ease the pain a little bit are going to be followed by all of the repercussions. And those repercussions feel like, to me, perhaps the greatest confluence of events that have ever occurred to imperil the U.S. dollar and imperil the monetary system as a whole. And it's not that I'm a fan of the current system. It's that that transition out of it and the likelihood of us getting something that looks nothing like Bitcoin but which looks like something that's better than the piece of garbage we're leaving behind, feels like those chances and this disruption really is the opportunity for that to happen.
2: I'm quite enthused for it imperiling the U.S. dollar and the current financial system. (laughs) The thing that I'm concerned about is I was in college during the last major financial crisis. I went to a small school, but it was like a, not that great school, but it's finance focused. And you could tell who were the seniors that year because they all look like a family member had died because their job prospects went from a full featured career and a future to McDonald's and CVS. And that took years to clear out the ability for a college graduate to compete against someone with three to five years experience, willing to take the entry level position for the same salary. That took multiple years to even work that out. If you happen to have graduated college in that three year period, your career is over. You will never make what you would have made You will never be who you would have been. Your life is materially diminished forever because of that trajectory and that three years out of college where you couldn't compete against people with five years more experience. Except in this instance, it's not the financial industry that's at stake. It's every industry. And like I'm terrified right now. After we get past this and after what comes, comes, the people who are 20 right now and 21 and their ability to create a career and a future for themselves over the next five to 10 years Because if what happened in 07 and 08, in the very smallest bit of just touching the finance people, ruined my friends' lives, this time it's going to be everything everywhere. And those careers will never be what they could have been.
1: Well, let's talk about where we all go. Yeah, I wanted to do that too. I want to inject a little bit of positivity. I mean, what can we do? This sounds really bleak. I think we have to hang on and help each other because that's the only way we're going to get through something like this. And we don't know what's going to happen. But I mean, remember that the 2008 crisis did bring us Bitcoin, which nobody expected. I mean, this was something that Satoshi was citing in the white paper and the Genesis block.
3: And Bitcoin is the money of the Internet and the Internet of money. And when we're all shut in our homes, the Internet does become truly the new economy. So one of the things that we haven't yet talked about is the idea that this is going to accelerate our transition to a digital economy in a way that's much more profound than hasn't happened before.
0: Yeah, the adage, or I don't know if it's an adage, but I think it should be that change doesn't happen because we want it to happen. Change happens in large part because it needs to happen, right? Because the conditions, the preconditions for change to happen have been fulfilled and all of the things that were otherwise reasons why you wouldn't do that thing have kind of fallen away in early, you know, bitcoin, i mean it's true today too, there's friction in using these systems and there's a lot less friction now today with, you know, all of the different applications and all the advances in wallets and all of the advances just kind of across the board throughout the technology and its user interface and stuff like that. but it still was never really enough to get people who fundamentally don't particularly care about this stuff to think about it much less care about something like bitcoin. you know, i never aspired to work in finance. but 2008 and 2009 Really forced me to wake up and learn about those things because it impacted me in such a significant way. You know, I lost my job at that point. I had had a decently successful career moving up to that. And so I think that, again, from that perspective, from the perspective of giving people a reason to actually bother to care about these things and to learn about these things, I think that there is a real chance that we see something like that. And I think that as alternatives, especially as the current system continues to effectively destroy itself, trying to save itself. I think that there are many options for alternatives and many opportunities for those alternatives to become real viable systems in today's world. So those are preconditions that really weren't there even, call it, six months ago. And I think that that is a new reality that it's taking me some time to get used to and to figure out really where we can have effective efforts and where we can push this thing forward in ways that are helpful and that do present alternatives. So I'm kind of curious, where are you guys thinking about that now, if you've even gotten there yet?
2: Well, I think what's interesting is, I agree with you. I think that people, if this goes the way it looks like it's going to go, are getting get a lot more interested in money. Primarily because what happens if you give everyone a $1,000 check? Well, they have a $1,000 more to spend. So we both have a supply crunch, and we're talking about vastly increasing the amount of currency in supply. Because unlike 09, they lent them out as loans, and those loans were on balance sheets. They didn't actually enter the supply. So while we just made $1.8 trillion, it didn't actually affect supply, even though it affected the monetary base. If we give half a trillion dollars to every American, then you're going to affect the CPI. However, if we both have a supply crunch because none of the factories are operating at scale, price needs to increase. However, since we're in a state of emergency, they're going to make price gouging quote unquote illegal. So you're going to be in this weird paradoxical state where there's a supply crunch But you can't increase your prices, but everyone has more currency to spend on hand. So the CPI should be adjusted upward, but they won't let it be adjusted upward, which means there's not going to be enough of an incentive to create more supply to counteract that. And like, that's how you death spiral.
0: That sounds a lot like Venezuela, right? Like that sounds a lot like any sort of economy that in order to save itself winds up hyperinflating.
3: Well, let's talk about the other aspect of this, which is, until now, a lot of the things that have been happening in politics in terms of the internet and the digital economy, uh, but also in terms of Bitcoin, have had a clear generational divide. There is that cutoff point that's somewhere between 40 and 50 years old, where people over 50 have limited access and use of the digital economy. They have limited work from home opportunities. They have limited interest in. Bitcoin compared to a younger generation. And they have a much bigger, stronger power base in the political system and have gotten a lot more benefit out of the political system for their entire lives than the generations that followed. One of the interesting things that happens now is that the generation that grew up with the skills of social media and a digital life, with the skills of critical thinking and information gathering and filtering, with the ability to work from home, with even the quirkiness of preferring the online realm from, from physical interactions, and are comfortable in that domain, coinciding with the generation that has less political power, coinciding with the generation that has more interest in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, that potentially brings a very, very big and positive, I think, political and power upheaval. I think this is going to empower younger people at a time when they've been so far disempowered. Younger people are at home on the Internet. Younger people are at home with remote learning. And if they have the equipment, the infrastructure, the capability to make that transition, and I think the U.S. is pretty well equipped for that, although not as well as other developed countries, certainly better than most developing countries that's a transition that is a generational transition and it's going to accelerate that massively.
2: I think to Andreas's point, sort of a crazy opportunity on the bright side is happening right now, which is 74 million people, which is how many Americans are under the age of 18, are homeschooled right now. (laughs) Their parents may not know it yet. Some are taking the responsibility more actively than others, but they're homeschooled for the rest of the school year And they may be homeschooled for a few months at the beginning of the next school year, hopefully not. Or the whole of next school year. Or the whole of next school year. And what we have is a captive population of 74 million kids whose parents just want educational resources and opportunities to teach their kids. And I think if there's any way that people listening could say, how could I be a part of the Bitcoin community and do good right now? There are 74 million kids whose parents need to take an active role in their education and need any and all help that they can. And how many million
3: students in higher education who are facing the exact same situation where, you know, as the meme goes right now, I don't know if you've seen this funny meme which says, oh, you finished Harvard? Well, turns out we both finished Zoom University. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a huge equalizer. That is a huge equalizer. If you remove the advantages of endowments, campus location, physical context, networking, and all of the other things that come from a physical university, you end up with quality of education and the teachers as the only differentiator. In Zoom University, it's all about the teachers.
2: Yeah, or sometimes just ego and incumbency bias, like the thought, why don't we just record the best teacher in America and have students watch the recordings of that teacher? It's got to be better than at least a third of teachers. <laughs> like
1: a third, I think that's an underestimation. <laughs>
2: I'm trying to be kind here. <laughs> those types of arguments don't sway.
3: Right. So this is going to change education. It's going to change a lot of people's lives in a very, very big way, and some of those changes at least hopefully are going to be positive. They're going to be liberating, they're going to be empowering for people.
1: Yeah, I was thinking of another meme that I've seen floating around recently, Andreas. The meme is A person staring at their computer in shock and saying, you mean those meetings really could have been emails? (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, now what we're seeing is a massive exposure of everyone to the culture of work at home.
3: WFH now, work from home. It's an acronym now. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. This is going to be a real cultural thing. And I know there has been a gradual shift over the last 10 years, maybe. Towards more remote work and people also becoming digital nomads and just taking it into their own hands. This is a transition I made personally in 2013. Actually, when I started working on the show, I was also making a career transition from being a scientist who worked at a laboratory to being a voice actor who works at home. And, you know, this was something that took me a couple of years to actually fully get accustomed to, I would say, because it was a decompression period from a lifetime of showing up at a place every day whether I've kind of wanted to or not. And I don't know about you guys, but my school used to give us awards, literally, if we had perfect attendance. So that means even when you feel sick or crappy, you need to show up at this building and we're going to give you an award for doing that.
0: Right, for the dedication that you've shown.
1: (laughs) Right, it's like a self-sacrificial kind of thing that really discourages self-care. It really discourages tuning into yourself and how you feel.
3: Well, now you get three years in jail for showing up when you're sick.
2: (laughs) Well, you see, the way that public school works, schools get paid on the basis of attendance.
1: Ah, okay. So it's kind of like certain prisons where they have to keep them full in order to get, you know, subsidies.
3: Kind of like certain prisons?
1: Well, exactly (laughs) like prisons.
0: Yeah, that (laughs) was my
3: experience.
2: Or certain states that get federal matching for child support payments.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I mean, I don't mean to laugh at this or make light of it, but The point I wanted to make with talking about this is that I foresee a massive cultural shift in the way that people look at things like working from home, questioning whether meetings in person are really necessary, questioning whether certain government agencies and the functions that they do are really necessary. Because also another thing that happened is, you know, we've seen the TSA kind of like relaxing their guidelines and Letting more than one ounce of hand sanitizer on flights—I don't know if that's a rumor, if that's really true—but we've definitely seen relaxation in certain, you know, regulations that people have questioned the point of or the usefulness of in the past. And I think that people's minds are going to be loosening up or opening up a little bit into questioning certain things. And you know, why do we do this? What is the point of this? Is it really necessary to go to the office every day, or could I actually be? productive working from home. I think that there's going to be an expansion of people's minds and their consciousness and new ideas are going to come about and it's going to kind of force us to reevaluate everything. And I think that's a positive thing.
2: I also think that when you look at things that the government do on a temporary basis that end up being indefinite, (laughs) I fear the draconian things that are going to occur that children will seem as normal in this emergency period, but because they're young, they're formative and will just become perpetual and then just think as the status quo. Like I never knew a life traveling before nine eleven. And so all of the security apparatus to me, I don't know a world before that, which is terrifying as a thought for those who are older. But for me, I don't even know the world that didn't exist before that. So to me, that's normal.
1: Well, that was already happening on a, you know, I guess you could say a market basis with, you know, children were growing up in a world with no privacy from social media, from pictures and cameras everywhere. So
2: But now we're talking about controlling when you can go outside, when you can't, and not because it's not appropriate for right now, and not because these aren't extraordinary measures and extraordinary times, but things that are temporary in the government have a tendency of being here forever. And the thing about the young is anything that happens around them, they just think is normal because they're forming. They don't know what is normal and what isn't. And so when you take a temporary measure that's protracted for a year or two, you have an entire generation of children that is their normal, and if you don't revoke that temporary measure, that just becomes acceptable in perpetuity. We need to start already planning the jubilee
3: party that happens after the pandemic quarantine. Like we're going to need a really big global party, and one of the difficulties is there is no specific date. You know, if you look at, for example, World War Two and times when people were under a lot of stress, at least they got the victory in Europe or whatever party at the end of it. And you get all of those iconic photos from Times Square being flooded with people, you know, sailors non-consensually kissing nurses and all of those things happen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) the iconic photo. Right. I was thinking of that. Most people don't know that that was a non-consensual kiss. Yeah.
3: Yeah. But, you know, in terms of the rest of the party attitude, that was a party that broke out in very large numbers across the entire world. And we don't have a party planned yet, but maybe we should start planning a party. Maybe that's the way we create some global consciousness around this. Set a specific milestone and say, when COVID infections drop below this point, we have a
2: global party. We're all gonna wear masks. (laughs) All right, so when Bitcoin's $100,000, that's when we party.
0: (laughs) Well, so. I appreciate you turning this into a more positive sort of ending and us going that direction. For kind of everybody who's out there, one thing that I've been trying to do is I've been trying to collect efforts that are happening kind of around the world, around the internet that people can potentially participate in, right? Because we all have this time, right? If you were working a normal job and you're suddenly finding yourself at home or even not and just not going out anymore, right? In your recreation, then I think that there are a lot of productive ways that people can do things. And in the show notes for this episode, I'm going to share an article that I wrote a couple of days ago and that's being updated basically every day that's focused on many of the crowdsourced, you know, types of efforts that are out there. Andreas, I know you've talked about a few. And if anybody knows of ones that we're not already thinking about or not already talking about, I'm going to, for the first time in the history of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, give you a hashtag to share on Twitter. with your message so that I can find out about those and I can add those to the big list that I've been compiling. So if you know of anything that's going on that we aren't already talking about or we aren't already profiling, please tweet about it and use the hashtag Corona Efforts, and uh, we'll pick it up and we'll add it to the post and try to route more people to it. But there's just a ton of efforts. This is a tough time. This is the most disruptive thing, for better and for worse, that's ever happened in my lifetime. I don't know about the rest of you, but this definitely is for me.
1: It's looking that way. Yeah. (laughs) And I would like to say, Adam, that's great that you have this list of resources for anybody who has spare energy to help. But your first obligation is always to take care of yourself as best you can. Very true. And don't feel bad if you don't have extra energy to help out other people right now. Your first obligation is your own oxygen mask and taking care of yourself. And if you are practicing the measures to reduce the spread of the virus, and if you are taking care of yourself and remaining relatively calm, or even not. If you are just taking measures to reduce the spread of the virus, you are already doing something.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you know, they said 100 years ago, the greatest generation was asked to storm the beaches of Normandy. This generation is asked to stay the fuck home.
3: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things about anxiety in situations like this and the stress that it causes is that having a perspective And shifting a perspective to being able to see how you can help others in a more tangible way, not just by staying the fuck home, which absolutely you need to do. But a lot of people can't. And a lot of people, once they stay home, can't leave. So, you know, let's also remember that you may have elderly neighbors who need to get prescriptions or groceries and can't go out or need to run simple errands and can't go out. So, one of the ways to Connect as people is to find safe ways to help others and shift the focus from being in your head to being out in the community and helping others. So for example, leaving a note under your neighbor's door and saying, if you need any help, if you need someone to run to the store for you or get something for you, I have masks, I have gloves and I can drop things off outside your front door without you even talking to me. And that can help a lot of people who are at the moment in a state of panic. But also there's other opportunities if you're an employer now is the time to reassure your workers if you're going to have to take a hit take it to your salary first if you're a landlord you know open uh lease cancellations for your tenants they may need to cancel because they're moving city or trying to go back to their families and they need to cancel that's a situation that's that's come up for me drop the rent reduce the rent if you can or even waive the rent for a month or two, if you can, in order to help people for whom this is literally the end of their
2: rope. The other thing I would say is that if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you like talking about Bitcoin. And so you probably have kids or nephews or nieces to whom are stuck at home and whose parents are just dying to have them fill their time with anything, especially if it's educational. And I think now is the perfect time to hit up your sister or brother to say, hey, your nephew or niece right now who isn't going to school, I'd love to jump on a call and talk them through Bitcoin or talk them through monetary policy or all that stuff that you think you know. I don't shut up about. Could I kill some time, an hour or two a week with the kids and teach them about this stuff? And I think, as we said before, $74 is a large market that we have that aren't doing a lot to compete with. And so you can even help your friends or family just by teaching their kids about Bitcoin and money and talk about the stuff that you love it could be art or history or anything but even on that front being the teacher that you always wanted to be but you didn't want to get a degree like now's the time to do that yeah definitely
3: and finally self-improvement you know i just got an email today from rosetta stone to subscribers of rosetta stone they make all languages available not just the one language that you pay a subscription for as of today There's tons of materials for self-guided learning on Khan Academy, on YouTube and other places. If it's about Bitcoin and crypto, great. If it's not, whatever, learn a new language, learn a new skill. Yesterday I completed my certification and I'm now a part 107 certified commercial drone pilot. (laughs) Nice. You know, I haven't had the time to finish that in a long time and I wanted to get that done. Suddenly I found time when I was locked in and nothing more to do.
0: All right, so that's a wrap on episode 431 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thank you, the listeners, for listening, and stay safe wherever you are. You can find new episodes every Sunday on coindesk.com, Let's Talk Bitcoin.com and of course, the show's dedicated feed at ltbshow.com. This episode is sponsored by eToro and features music by Jared Rubens and some of my piano again. Today's episode featured Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and myself, Adam B. Levine, with editing by Jonas out in Germany. Have any questions or comments, send me an email at adam at com, and we'll see you next
1: time.